Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. First things first, have to thank everybody who came out to our holiday show at House of Independence in Asbury Park, New Jersey. It's fun to do these things a few times a year. If you're not coming out to these, you're missing out. Keep your eyes peeled for the announcement when we do our next one. Who knows when that'll be? A few months from now, probably. And uh, come on out. Have a good time. Enjoy some dumb comedy. And thanks to everybody who was there, both on stage and off. Now, this week's episode, we're doing something we've never done before. Um, We had an episode a while ago, I think well over a year ago, that was behind the paywall over at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. And it was all about New Jersey's music scene. Now, if you've been listening to our show, you know that we do have this sort of theory that a lot of New Jersey's spirit comes from its independence. A lot of its independence relates to its music scene. And there's a great article just came out at uh, altpress.com. And it's all about the house show scene in New Brunswick, the basement scene. Um, which, you know, I was, I participated in slightly when I was at Rutgers, as did Mike and Nick, as did so many people before and after us. And it's a great look at that particular music scene and why it has meant so much to people over the years. Now we did an episode behind the paywall a long while back where we interviewed a number of New Jersey musicians. I got quotes from them, uh, all about what the scene has meant to them and, and how it formed who they are, what their experiences in it were. Um, from musicians to people running record labels to people who were, were at every show. Um, we got a lot of quotes from people. So this was an episode that I was really, really proud of. It has lived behind the paywall up until now. Patrons who've been there since the beginning, you've heard this one before. <coughs> Apologies to Andrea and Carson. Please edit out that sneeze. Although now I'm probably going to listen to this and hear the sneeze and hear this part too. Because we are all cruel to each other because that is how we express love in New Jersey. Um, it has been behind the paywall up until now. To all the patrons who have heard it before, thank you so much for getting our backs and being a part of this thing. Uh, maybe it'll convince some other people to join up over at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. We're always putting out good stuff over there. Pretty much every week we're cranking out extra content for you. Um, and for people who have never heard it before, we hope you enjoy this celebration of New Jersey's independent music scene. Enjoy the episode, and please go to altpress.com. If you just Google New Brunswick Basement Scene, it comes right up, and it's a, it's a great article where they interview people from, you know, birds, screaming females. Perhaps the New Jersey bed with the greatest name of all, Ogbert the Nerd. It's a great article. This is a great episode. Enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to... New Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, it's Chris Gethard, and I'm welcoming you to a very unusual podcast here at New Jersey is the world. This is ostensibly an episode of Wotown, or at least it started as that, but it's going to be structured so differently than what you're used to. Taking a big swing, doing an experiment here. And it's for a very organic reason. You see, a few weeks back, I received a voicemail. As everybody knows, I love the voicemails around here. It's what makes this whole thing a community. And I've long said, if you think there are things we should be covering that we haven't gotten to yet, let us know and maybe we'll get to them. And we received this voicemail from Lee. 
Hey, Chris, this is Lee. I'm from uh, Marlton, currently Clifton, and I thought it would be cool to, I'm not sure if you guys talked about this or plan to, but um, I think New Jersey has a rap for being, you know, a bunch of tough kids that kind of like Italian mob vibe, Jersey Shore, but uh, back in the late 90s, mid-90s, early 90s, there was just a robust punk scene in our state. Um, from Marlton, we used to have uh, a festival called Scream in the Field that was sponsored by the Blue Barn in town, which has had a dare-like, you know, foundation. We would have to sign waivers that we wouldn't partake in alcohol or drugs within 24 hours of participating in the festival. And then later through high school, um, and there's a guy on Instagram, NJ Kenny Archives, he has been collecting all of the flyers from all of the basement church shows, VFWs, firehouses, um, all across the state with all these bands. Um, I think if you didn't have a showbox full of shitty plastic cassette tapes of the four guys in your chemistry class who, you know, put an EP out, like, I, I still have a box of those somewhere. I can't listen to them, but uh, I have them. But I think it's a really cool subculture of what we commonly think of as being New Jersey culture, uh, for teenagers especially. But, uh, you know, while we were, or at least I was in my band, playing shows in the Derby Firehouse in Fordentown, you know, across the state, Jack Antonoff, uh, Bleacher's theme slash Taylor Swift production. He was playing shows in the same uh, dirty, you know, BFWs and Firehouse too. So pretty cool subculture of the state. If you grew up here, you probably went to a $5 show. I probably saw you there being the only female, um, people knew who I was, so it was just a cool time and a cool thing that I don't think people think about when or know about when they think about New Jersey, so hope to hear more about that because that's uh, definitely my jam. Have a great day. Love what you're doing. Now, I heard Lee's voicemail. I was throwing my fist in the air. I was like, yes, we have to talk about the New Jersey punk scene. And Lee's voicemail summed up so much of why. Now, here's the thing, Lee. I had already written down, months prior, we're writing down episode ideas for Wotown. I had written down music scene. It was one of the very first things I put there. And actually, we recorded it. And then we went back and listened to it. And it was pretty bad. It was really slow and low energy and I'm trying to figure out why and I'm going here's why because such a a big part of the show is us messing with each other being self-deprecating telling these stories that are you know over the top and and that real blustery jersey storytelling style that I think is genuine and we're telling the truth but we're going big and I realized me Mike D and Bonaduce we all were really connected to the New Jersey punk scene. It was really formative for all three of us and we had too much reverence for it. We were speaking so genuinely that there was nothing particularly funny about it. So what I'm doing today is I'm taking the best stuff that we recorded as part of that episode and we're going to put it out there. But I figured if I really want to talk about the Jersey punk scene, the people I should turn to 
are the Jersey punks. I'm really lucky to have a lot of people in my life who are musicians who came up in Jersey. So I've reached out to a ton of them, asked them to tell me what they loved about coming up in the scene, what the scene means, what they think it offers. This is going to be us really alternating back and forth between Wotown stories and messages from musicians I love. I think this will really give it a lot of heart. You'll really feel how genuine it is. Also, if you're someone out there and you're not really a music person and you're going, maybe I'll check out some of these bands. Um, I think that's a great thing. It can be a primer. First, we're going to hear from a band who's just been absolutely crushing it for the past decade, really. Uh, it's the Front Bottoms. If you don't know the Front Bottoms, they came out in North Jersey. Now they're down in uh, Asbury Park. And they put out this music that's so catchy, heartfelt lyrics. They have deservedly built this massive fan base who's really devoted to them in a cult way. They also put on an event called the Champagne Jam every year where they invite tons of other bands they love. They've had me do it as a comedian, and they really just try to spread the love, take all the wonderful things they've built, share it with other people. They share their fan base with the other bands they love. Incredible guys, really representative of the attitude of Jersey music. And I think in this voicemail you'll hear, this is just a big broad stroke of what it means to be an artist from New Jersey. What's good, Chris? This is Brian and Matt from the Front Bottoms, longtime fans, you know that, longtime friends. Um, so, yeah, just talking about Jersey, coming up in the scene. Uh, I think me and Matt both really appreciated the fact that there was really no boundaries. You know, like if you said, oh, you were from New Jersey, that was like, that was enough. That was freaky enough. So we weren't trying to like stick to any particular sound or anything like that. We were just like, being ourselves and you know also the scene like playing basements and stuff around new brunswick playing like you know up in north jersey random spots vfw halls it was all a good time and stuff and that's what it was about spreading the love also one more thing is you can never escape from new jersey no matter where you go all around the world there'll always be somebody there like talking about jersey or they came from jersey or want to hear a story about it so that's our opinion. That's our style. You know our style. So, uh, yeah, Jersey Strong. Talk to you soon, brother. Now, you might have noticed both Lee and the Front Bottoms mentioned something very specific, is that there's all these venues in New Jersey, places that you can play that are like VFW halls and basements, and it's just kids organizing shows for other kids to play. And one of the most formative experiences of my life was because Mike D put together one of those shows. We're going to hear that story. And then we'll also hear a story about a show that Bonaduce once put together in his own backyard. And it had a headliner that you'll be very surprised to hear who that was. You know, we always like to start by focusing on, okay, so the three of us grew up in the same town. Are there any stories that attach to our hometown uh, in terms of this topic, and then we kind of blow it out to New Jersey as a whole, as you know, if you've been listening. Now, this one, there's a thing that actually is near and dear to my heart. And I have talked to other people who were there, who I've reconnected with later in life, who say that this night meant a lot to them. And Mike D, you organized a show with a bunch of local punk bands none of them particularly great, no offense, like local punk bands. And yet I look at that as this night that like rewired my DNA. And I feel like I'm not the only person who says that seeing 
Felix Trump missing children and one nature in the basement of the Pleasantdale Presbyterian Church cracked open a lot for them. I wonder how you remember that night. I mean, that was the first show that I ever that I ever put on. And I think for for me, I mean, actually, this reminds me of a hilarious thing where you you wrote a book a few years ago and you asked if we could chat about this a little bit. Um, and I remember we did like sort of an interview and I was in the world's fanciest conference room at my job, you know, overlooking 7th Avenue in a very fancy part of Manhattan. And here we are talking about punk rock basement shows from 25 years ago and how they changed people's lives. You know, I, for me, I just thought that I, so I was a janitor at that Presbyterian church, <laughs> one of them at that haunted Presbyterian church, um, one of a million strange jobs that, that I had in high school. And so every week I would have to clean this huge auditorium that they have. And it would only take me like 10 minutes to clean it because no one ever used it for anything. It was empty. I mean, they had the church and they had a bunch of classrooms and stuff that, that I would have to clean that were you know, dirty from people using them, but there would be this big empty room. And I was thinking in my head, this would be a really great place to have a punk show. So I started going through all the, you know, demos and cassette tapes that I'd gotten from going to other shows. And I just started calling the numbers on the back that was like for bookings call right back when people would actually put out cassettes and seven inches they would always put a phone number on it and nine times out of ten their mother would answer it would be the their phone house. like <laughs> half the time their mom picked up be like oh is anyone from felix frump there be like hold on be like graham the phone graham and then you know you would talk and i did that enough times and i got a couple of bands to agree to come play this show and then i rallied up our crew of friends to do all the things you need so people to help set up a PA and make flyers and work the door, $5, $4 with a can of food. That was a big thing back then. I always had to stock, stock the food pantry. Mm-hmm. And then we had this show and I was really nervous. I mean, I don't think we, we had to make like, I think $150 to pay for renting the gym. And I was worried that we were, weren't even going to make that. And I would be janitoring there for free for the next, you know, three months to do this. But so many people showed up. And I think for a lot of people, that was their first punk show that they'd ever been to because of where it was, right? It wasn't a place that you normally had shows. Normally we'd have to drive somewhere else. So I think it was, it was a big thing. And, you know, those three bands ended up in various forms playing around New Jersey for a long, long time. You know, I know you still talk to, to some of those guys. Yeah. I reconnected the Frank, who was the lead singer, missing children now plays guitar in a band called warriors that are friends of mine. And when we realized that when I realized, Oh, you're from missing children. First of all, he was like, wait, what? Like (laughs) missing children was around for like, 10 minutes. And I was like, first punk show I ever saw missing children was there. And I told him, I was like, I was 13. It kind of made me realize that there was this whole alternate path that, you know, like you're in regular school, you're in public school, teachers are telling you how things are, parents are telling you how things are. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, there's this whole other bill of goods that I could be buying into that I didn't know about. And it's like, we wouldn't use this term back then. The movie wasn't out, but I'm like, Oh, the matrix just got disrupted a little bit for me. Like I can see, okay, like I'm angry and I feel weird all the time. 
and there's kids flocking from other towns and it changed my life. And he's like, I will tell you, he goes, I'm not bullshitting. Every band that played that bill, we met that night and we all remember that show so well because we played, like you said, my like a hundred shows together over the lifetime of those bands again. And it was just this night where it felt like, I'll never forget realizing, holy shit, man, there's kids from other towns here. And that felt like a really dangerous and remarkable thing to me of like, there's kids from Clifton in this church in West Orange. You just realize, oh, that we're all out here. Everybody's out here. We can actually learn about each other. And everybody's pretty friendly too. I mean, like I, I never went to, I mean, shows like that. And that was kind of a big venue for we're going to usually like, like you said, VFWs or basements, but there was never, there was like, there was no fights or anything. Like everybody was just like happy to be there and be listening to music. You know what I mean? I do remember there was a tense moment where someone was smoking pot and Mike D got on stage and started yelling, you're going to get us all in trouble. We're not going to be allowed to have shows. Think about the scene, you fucking hippies, things like that. And, uh, I do remember that, a, a tirade that had to happen, which I assume, Mike D, was, you got yelled at, so you had to put your game face on and, and pretend you meant those words. I mean, I think I was more concerned about being on the hook for getting busted <laughs> for strangers smoking weed. It's like, if I'm going to get busted for smoking weed, I at least want to be the one smoking it. Um, and I, and it, <laughs> I don't think we ever did, did any more shows there. But in my mind, I thought that could have been a really cool recurring place to have shows. Yeah. And I knew even then, like, you know, you don't shit where you eat. Like, if you want to have a, a venue or a place to do something, you kind of have to be cool to the people running it. And this is a church. So, right. you know, I don't know. You used know. to hang out there all the time and, like, party in the basement. That's true. But that was with a limited group of we people. We shit where we ate all the time. As you can tell, putting on shows, it was cool. It, it made us feel empowered. Like I said before, Nick did it too. He threw a show in his backyard that... I have never forgotten because one of the cool things is, you know, you organize your shows with all these local Jersey bands and then sometimes people from other places come through and a band played Nick's Backyard. And if you know 90s punk at all, especially 90s ska punk, you know that one of the bands that randomly showed up in his backyard went on to become pretty big deal in that scene and a national headliner to this day. Nick famously... And I've talked to the members of this band about it as well. They remember this. <laughs> you threw a show in your backyard. And I remember it was like all the local band. I remember being like, oh, the Lavalinas from Little Falls. Oh, Thirsty. Like Thirsty seemed like a big deal to me. Like they were such scenesters in, uh, and like played shows in New York a bunch. I'm like, oh my God, Thirsty's playing in Nick's backyard. And then from what I remember, a band reached out and was like, hey, we need a, to- we need a show. We're on tour. Can we jump on? And that band was... Less Than Jake. Less Than Jake played in your backyard, I believe on their first ever tour, if I remember That's right. That's crazy. Yeah, and um, my grandmother was living with me at the time because she was uh, like end-stage renal failure and uh, on dialysis like three times a week, but she was a musician and they were like the nicest people. Like I mean, my whole house, everybody was hanging out in my house, hanging out with like my 75, 78-year-old like grandmother. I think she was older. She was probably closer to 80 at the time. Like it was a, it was a good time. The cops even came, the West Orange police came, like the captain showed up. And I remember he's like, who lives here? I was like, I do. He's like, are your parents home? I said, yeah. Do you want to meet him? He goes, yeah. (laughs) He like goes in the house and this is like, you know, 
this is what nine like I guess ninety six probably or something like around then, and uh, you know I just went in. It was like. You know, talk to my parents. Okay, no problem. We don't, we don't care. As long as you wrap everything up by like, you know, whatever it was, eight, nine o'clock, whatever the, the quiet time was in, in town. And uh, they left and we didn't have any problems, you know? It was 4th of July. Was it 4th of July? Yeah, it was 4th oh, right. of July. We had the grill July. going. We're cooking. Uh, yeah, everybody brought food. Everybody's grilling, eating. Everybody's uh, extremely respectful. And uh, it was just a, it was really a good time. It was a great example, too, of the, New Jersey punk rock grapevine in action. Because I, I think what happened was Less Than Jake was touring and the show they had booked for July 4th got canceled and they called somebody in New Jersey and they called somebody and then I think Dancing Andy yes. called me and was like, hey, aren't you throwing a show today? Can can they get on the bill? And I had never heard of Less Than Jake at that point, but I was like, well, you know, it was like, yeah, they're from Florida. It's 4th of July. Like, cool. Like, they can come. Like, you know, we can offer them a five-way split of the of the five-dollar door price and all the hot dogs they can eat. And and they were like, great, you know. And they they came and, and rocked it out. And then it's not an exaggeration to say that within three years they were one of the biggest punk bands in the country. I think as far as that ska punk scene goes, that was really catching momentum then. And they were like at the crest of it. Yeah, I think. And I, I remember being really into them for years and uh, just never forgot. The first time I saw you, I remember them like climbing your shed, Nick. Like they were fucking around climbing up on top of your shed. Yeah. There was people sitting on top of the shed and yeah. There was, I, I don't know how I convinced my parents like, oh, well, I'm going to have a bands playing in the backyard and they were like okay no problem like i remember i brought my parents a, thinking my my item of food is you know the one dollar off you bring an item of food mine was an entenmann's pecan ring i remember or no Good. that like one was I a always barbecue say you can right? never go wrong with entenmann's yeah that was bring food to eat not donate yeah i brought that that's entenmann's. true everybody was cooking like nonstop. i think we went through like two propane tanks that day nobody gets mad when you show up with the entenmann's nobody that's true nobody so as you can see Real common thread here between everybody you've heard from today, which is just this feeling that it was all in our hands and and we had the agency to make things happen, putting on shows, forming bands, all kinds of stuff. And from a young age, I knew, man, when, when I was a kid, you know, you watch movies, TV shows, and the punk rockers were like these people with safety pins in their faces and big bright orange mohawks. And that was real. Some people did look like that, but for all of us, whether you look like that or not, it was really about this sense of, oh my God, we're empowered. We're allowed to do things ourselves. And I wonder why it was really pronounced with Jersey people. It feels like it's the common theme that everyone pushes is that they love that sense that we could do it ourselves. I feel like maybe kids in Jersey grow up fast and they learn how to take care of themselves fast. And they're around a whole culture of people who are always hustling always trying to make things happen for themselves, make a butt, buck, sex, set something up, get something going. Maybe that's why we all felt like we could actually rent spaces and start bands, whatever it is. Either way, it wasn't just us. You're about to hear from my friend, Brian Gorsinger. Uh, he's the lead front person of a band called Nightbirds. If you don't know Nightbirds, man, they are incredible. You might've seen them on the Chris Gethard show. They brought all the Jersey Shore punks and, and ransacked the place. Um, they're great, just fast, hard punk, 
thrashes a lot, but it also has a lot of like uh, surf elements. And it's a really cool blend where that genre mixes in. And everybody in the band is incredibly talented. Um, Joe Keller, who you might know as the bassist uh, when he was with the Ergs, he's now the bassist with Nightbirds. And you ever see them live, you just watch how fast his hands move and it's like hypnotizing. You've never seen anything like it. And Brian, who you're about to hear from, is a hell of a front person. The nicest guy you ever met off stage, just a, a, a legitimately sweet, gentle, thoughtful person to a degree you don't often find. And on stage, comes off like a wide eyed, frothing maniac really puts on a show but you'll hear before he was ever in bands he was doing the same exact thing we were in a different part of the state hey chris and company uh my name is brian gorsegner i grew up in middletown new jersey uh going to shows all over uh you know all over new jersey in 1997 1998 it's kind of when i got into um a memory that strikes me quite often is how when I was like 15 or 16, I booked a hall show in Waretown, New Jersey. And I was, uh, I was too young to be like a legal, uh, you know, signee for the paperwork to rent the hall. So my father drove me all the way down to Waretown from Middletown and he had to stay there the whole time. And, you know, he just sat in the corner with a cup of coffee, uh, as like four or five huge fights and brawls broke out over the course of the evening uh, with like the punks and the hardcore kids versus like these Nazi punks from South Jersey that showed up. And I remember driving back with my dad and him being like, you know, what was, what was all that melee? Like what was going on? And I was like, dad, it, it was the Nazi punks. Like we had to, we had to throw down and like, sh- you know, show them what's up and that they're not welcome in, in our punk scene. And the fact that he didn't think that was insane or dangerous enough to stop driving me to these events all over New Jersey, Cove and Roselle Park and the M&M Hall and Old Bridge and like all these places that until I was legally able to drive myself, uh, he was a willing participant in bringing me to all these places. So I guess I have a pretty cool dad or uh, I, I don't know, just a, a, par- a reckless parent. I'm not sure which way that could go. But uh, yeah, loving the new show. Keep it up. Now you might be sitting here going, that's cool. You started bands, you rented VFW halls, all this stuff. But there was more to it than that because I've never been in a band in my life. Uh, Mike D has been in bands, but it's not what he wound up doing long-term. I don't think Nick was ever in a band, but you can see all of us really feel like it was this formative part of things. And it showed up in all ways. Um, Some people booked the shows, ran the bands, did all sorts of stuff. And another important thing that was a big part of the scene is before the internet, the way we all found out about each other and other stuff going on was through these homemade magazines called fanzines. And Mike actually ran one that became this formative thing for our crew and kind of established who this gang of West Orange kids was in this punk scene. One of the things I loved about the music scene growing up was that there were so many opportunities, even if you weren't a musician. And one of the things that I know it still exists, um, fanzine culture still exists. It's not, it was kind of the internet for us before the internet. It was where you went to find out about bands, about shows, about everything in a way that's, I think, hard to understand for people who didn't grow up with it then, not to be a crotchety old man, but now fanzines, I think, are like, confessional or self-published comics or focused on specific areas and they're great and they're cool and I support them but back then it was how you found out about everything and Mike D 
you ran a fanzine <laughs> called Marsha that was like very funny, a lot of music reviews, but that did make, I, I remember going to shows and when people realized that I was like f- part of the Marsha crew, sometimes it felt like there was some notoriety to that. And it made you a little bit of a hub of the North Jersey scene in a way. But it also, I wanted to ask you too, first of all, to just walk us through that, what that was like and, and what it gave you. But also I look at it and think with what you've done in your career, being like a creative director, being the point person on things that where you're, I actually look back and realize, oh, that there's something to the idea that you were like making shit and creative directing it with no rules when you were a junior in high school. I don't know if that's a reach, but I think about that. I mean, I think I started, you know, I started Marsha out of bitterness, (laughs) specifically (laughs) because I remember we, we would go to shows or people would meet and they would hand us fanzines and I would look at them and be like, this is awful. These people can't write. They have nothing to say. They can't even make a clean photocopy. So my whole philosophy for any creative work is if you're going to shit on somebody else's stuff, you got to do it better. That's, and I still hold that true to this day. So I was like, you know what? Like these things are terrible. I'm going to make a really good fanzine. So, you know, we got out the the paper and the glue and, and we started making a fanzine. And I think the other part was we would we would go to every show. I mean, I there was a period of time where I went to two or three shows every single week and I would just hand out fanzines and then there was this thing called Book Your Own Fucking Life, mm-hmm. which was Um, you know put out by MRR Maximum Rock and Roll and you could send in and be like hey I have a fanzine if you want a copy send I think mine was a dollar and two stamps and people all around the world would get this and they started sending me stuff and I started corresponding with all these people around the world and then people record labels started sending me stuff and then I started to be able to get real interviews with people and, you know, and I remember I even started getting, I, I went to see Bad Religion and I got to interview Brett Gerwitz. And, you know, I was like a 17 year old kid and I still love Bad Religion. I still think they're one of the most badass bands that's that's ever existed. And uh, and he clearly had read my fanzine at some point because he was able to con- converse about this. So, I mean, I think that that was the thing. Like I, I did it. I did a zine because I thought I could do it better than other people, whether I did or not is up for debate, but you know, you gotta, you gotta contribute. You can't be the oar dragging in the water. If you're part of something. I do remember one of my favorite, it makes me laugh when I think about it to this day was one of the early issues had an interview with Ben Weasel that was clearly just you ran up to Ben Weasel after a show and like shouted at him a little bit and he ran away. Like that was, was at Maxwell's. It was at Maxwell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember you interviewed him at the bar and we saw like, uh, Oh my God, it was a great show. It was like the Riverdales. Um, Boris, the sprinkler. Uh, yeah. Uh, pink Lincoln's who had uh what you call it in it. Uh, Iggy pop. Now, it's starting to segue into some talk of Maxwell's. We're going to get to that in just a second. But I want to put a button on this whole idea we've been talking about, which is the empowerment of young people and how in Jersey it seems really pronounced. Now, we're next going to hear from the drummer of one of the best bands to come out of New Jersey, period, ever. 
I will stand by that. Screaming females are a force to be reckoned with. If you've heard their stuff, you know that. And if you've seen them live, oh boy, oh boy. I mean, we all know they put on a show. Marissa can play a solo as good as anyone in the history of guitar. And I'm not the only one who says that. Like, Marissa has shown up ranked on lists of the best guitarists ever in magazines you've heard of. And then King Mike on the bass, no joke. Jarrett on the drums, no joke. They just fill that room with sound. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to witness. Jarrett plays drums and sent me this beautiful message about what it was like to discover the New Jersey punk scene. Hey, this is Jarrett Darty. I play drums in Screaming Females. Grew up in North Jersey, originally in Montclair, and then I moved to Paquonic when I was in uh, middle school. Um, yeah, so... The New Jersey DIY punk scene is the most important thing that's ever happened to me. It completely changed my life, and I'm not sure if I would be here today without it. Uh, growing up in North Jersey, would play music with my friends. We'd just get together and jam in each other's basements. It's just something for fun. No aspiration at all. For us, music was going into New York and going to see shows, and if it was a small show, it would be someplace like Irving Plaza. It's like, I don't know, 1,500 people or so. We didn't know anything about DIY culture. And so, yeah, for in our minds, if you were a band, a small band, you played to a minimum of about 1,000 people. And uh, it just seemed like something I could never really be a part of. A few of my friends who were older ended up moving down to New Brunswick, got involved in the scene there, invited us down to come hang out and go go to a party. Um, and I showed up and there was bands playing and there was people there to see them. And I will never forget walking down into that basement for the first time and walking down a set of stairs where I actually had to walk past the band who were not on the stage or just on there on the floor. And it's the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And from then on, I had to be involved, jumping in vans, going to shows. Um, a lot of those bands ended up moving to New York or LA and trying to make it in the, you know, in the A&R world and major labels and most of that fell through but um, but yeah I left New Jersey for a little while and then when I came back found out about the Ergs and started going to see them and just the, the amazing culture of the house shows changed over from being parties to really being about shows and bringing in touring bands and Screaming Females started playing that scene got connected with bands from all over the country and around the world and it just that's where that's the course that my life has taken since then. It's just been involved with people I met through that scene. They're they're my chosen family, you know. It's I've gotten to see the world because of it and it means everything to me. I guess that's it. I think Jared really captured that feeling of what it's like to walk into a DIY experience for the first time. For some of us it was VFW Walls Church basements. His was an actual basement show. It's a beautiful thing. But I do want to be clear. When you let teenagers and college kids run the infrastructure of an entire scene, it's it's not always the most well-organized. We're now going to hear from Joe Steinhardt, who, if you're into Jersey punk, he's he's been a really um, big piece of the backbone of everything. He's one of the founders of Don Giovanni Records, who have put out tons of releases from Jersey artists, including my albums, Cheap Plug. And Joe is just a great guy who does a lot for the music scene. And just like the other aspects of DIY, you run a fanzine, you put on shows, sometimes you run a label. 
But, like I said, when you let kids take the reins, it's not always the most organized. Hi, this is Joe from Central New Jersey, and I'm going to just tell a story about the weird thrill of going to shows when I was like 14 or something when I was in ninth grade. And I remember I'd see a flyer at Princeton Record Exchange for a band I wanted to see, and they were playing New Brunswick, and the address would just be a house. Um, so, you know, it would say doors at 7 or, you know, band on at 7.30. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to be late, so I'd get on the bus or the train and do transit, and I would be there and make sure I was there by like 6.30, you know, because I definitely wanted to make sure there was room and it wasn't sold out or anything like that. And so I'd show up at this house and there would be nobody there. And I'd say, oh, you know, I hope this is the right place, but maybe I'll just wait around and walk around the block a couple times. And so I'd come back at 7 and there'd be nobody there. And I'd say, I hope this is the right house. Um, and so maybe I'd go to South Bus Burrito or Tata's or something and I'd eat and I, I would literally, you know, there weren't cell phones. I would literally just be like walking around New Brunswick alone as like a child. And then I'd get back it'd be like eight o'clock and there'd be nobody there. And then just as I was about to leave and I'll be sitting on the steps, someone would come home and I'd say, oh, okay, good. And then I'd say, is there a, there's some kind of show? And they'd say, oh, I have no idea. I, I live here, but I think my roommate is running a show tonight. I'm just a human being that lives here. And then I would be like, oh, okay. But you can come in and sit on the couch in this weird house, like all by yourself with a child. Like I'm a college age man and, you know, I'm going to go upstairs and this might even be a co-ed house and you're like a child, but you'll see men, women, adults. And I just sit there and sit there and just like stare. And all of a sudden, like nine o'clock would roll around and, you know, a band would show up and by 9.30 the place was full and then um, the show was over by like, and, you know, and I would, uh, I'd have to, you know, get on the bus and go home. I'd often have to leave before the headliner played because the headliner would always play so late and I either had curfew or had to make a, make a train home. So I saw a lot of opening bands back when I was younger, which might be how I got into, um, all the, all the small local bands and not the, not the cool headliners that always played too late for me to see. Um, so yeah, New Jersey music rules. That's right. When you spend a lot of times at these uh, DIY circumstances, you also spend a lot of time sitting on somebody else's front steps in quiet confusion. Thank you, Joe, and everybody support Don Giovanni Records, including Warriors, who have put out releases on Don Giovanni. We're now going to talk to Lauren, my friend who's the front person for Warriors. And if you don't know Warriors, just a great, great band. Lauren is someone who has just hustled so hard for so long, carved out a space. Warriors really has some stuff to say. The music is that perfect uh, blend of music where you can really move to. But if you want to dig in, there's some there's some quiet anger there that comes through in a beautiful way. Warriors is great. And Lauren also talks about the beauty of DIY and then mentions the sketchy clubs. And we'll get into that right after we hear from Lauren. Hey, Chris. It's Lauren. Uh, I grew up in Martinsville, New Jersey, and uh, went to shows all through high school in the late 90s, uh, which means I went to shows at Elk Lodges and basements and sketchy clubs that had all ages uh, matinees, and it was just this really weird, perfect storm where there were just so many places to play within 45 minutes. It was one of, you know, the most densely populated state, and um, 
It just let me meet kids from all walks of life from all over the state, kids who didn't go to my high school, a lot of whom I'm still friends with today. And, um, you know, it just really let me see what DIY could be. Like, that's all we did. And um, I just think that it, it was just such a special place to be, especially when you're growing up and getting into music and stuff. So, yeah, it was great. Thanks. Thank you, Lauren, for the beautiful memories. Thank you for the great music. Everybody support Warriors. Now, you may have noticed the phrase sketchy clubs was put in there. It's another great aspect of Jersey. It's not just the underground stuff. There are actual clubs, but they're not always above board. There's a lot of great stories about these clubs. Let's go back to the Wotown gang to hear a couple of them. I also think about it, too. I'm sitting here thinking about how lucky we were because... Not only were there just every weekend, there were shows at VFW halls, American Legion halls, but you had, it's a small state, and we had the Stone Pony, world famous, City Gardens, pretty famous documentary about it. You had Maxwell's, another legendary venue. Those are three legendary venues in the same state. You also have the New Brunswick basement show scene, legendary. You also had the Melody Bar and Court Tavern there when we were growing up. That got knocked down. Hunka Bunka. In Sayreville, New Jersey, Hunka. at Hunka Bunkas. The pipeline. So many yeah, the venues. The pipeline, Studio One. So many. Lots of bands played there. Now I'm going to pause there because you can hear that. That is a list of impressive venues. Also, the Hunka Bunka mention. Anybody who grew up in New Jersey around the time we did just started laughing because that commercial was all over local TV. You couldn't turn on WPIX without hearing the words Hunka Bunka. Now, one of the venues mentioned there was City Gardens. It was in Trenton, New Jersey. I actually never went because it was shut down before I was old enough, but I always heard stories from my brother and his friends about City Gardens. Luckily, Mike D and Bonaduce, they have a few right now. I was too young. It had stopped just around the age when I was getting into going to shows, but I know you guys did attend shows at the legendary City Gardens in Trenton, which was a legendary place. So one of the coolest shows I've ever been to, we saw Rancid there. That was my first time there. Was it Was it as nuts as everybody said in there? It was just so cool. It was like, and then I have an older friend who's probably 10 years older. I mean, he grew up like two blocks from City Gardens. It was at like, you know, it was in the punk scene like heavy back then. And the stories that he would tell me were just like insane. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad I was able to at least catch the end of that that era and see like some cool bands there. I forgot who else was on that bill, but it was like an amazing show. There's guys like hanging from the sprinklers, like gutter punks, like hanging from the sprinklers, swinging over the crowd, like that kind of shit. The, the first time we went there and at this point we weren't naive. Like I think Nick, Nick and I started going to, to punk shows in the city when we were in like eighth grade. Literally, we would take the bus in and go to shows. So, or my mom and dad would drive us into like the yeah, wetlands and we, drop us off. Yeah, you know, and be like, "See you later." Um, they'd go out to dinner and then pick us up. And the first time I I went to City Gardens, it was a shocker. You know, I I was probably fifteen and hitched a ride with some older punk kids that we went to school with. You know, and I had my you know Ramones leather jacket on, and you know I had a fanzine, and I thought I knew the whole thing. And we got to City Gardens, which was in, I don't even, I guess technically it's part of Trenton, but it was in like an industrial outskirts. There was nothing around but garages. 
and I went there and you would wait in line outside. So you're in this long line of hundreds of people waiting to get into the shows and we're waiting in line and all of a sudden this woman gets stabbed in the leg and she's like screaming and everyone's going crazy and she runs away and I'm like, oh my God, that woman got stabbed and everyone's like, yeah. Then about 20 minutes later, the same woman comes back with like a t-shirt wrapped around her stab wound on her leg and she's going up and down the line saying, give me a few dollars. I just got stabbed. Come on. I deserve a few beers tonight. So she's like walking up and down the line asking for money, having just been stabbed in this same line. I mean, it was a nuts place. And I'll tell you, that is not even one of the most extreme stories you will hear about city gardens. If you sit around and reminisce about it with New Jersey punk rockers and you know, Wotown, one thing we haven't gotten to yet is we really like to tie it back into West Orange stories. We heard about the Les and Jake show, the Pleasantdale Church show earlier on, but let's bring back a little West Orange because there's actually a City Gardens West Orange conspiracy. We are forgetting one fantastic West Orange-related City Gardens conspiracy that I think the world needs to know about. Talk to me about this before I move on, yeah. So if you are able to track down the original version of the Green Day Dookie album. So when when Green Day's Dookie came out, no one expected Green Day to become a hugely popular band. I mean, everyone in the punk scene knew Green Day, liked them, awesome band, huge fans. So, But nobody thought they were going to blow up and turn into the sort of uber-popular global band they are today. So when that album came out, they were touring and they played at City Gardens. And so if you find the original CD or vinyl of this and you look on the back cover, you'll see that there's a black and white... The back cover of the album is a black and white crowd shot of City Gardens. And in the middle of that crowd shot, there's a person jumping up in the air. Oh, and, yeah. And he's wearing an Ernie puppet, like Ernie from Sesame Street, on his hand and that's a a friend of ours that that we went to school with and he was at the green day show and just for to be funny brought this ernie puppet was dancing with it in the pit and somebody took a photo um i guess i was from an earlier an earlier show at city gardens and then dookie came out i forgot about. and then the funny thing is so fast forward six months a year green day blows up they they get videos on mtv they become huge they repress the record and they photoshop out ernie out of the back cover so if you look at the Duke, yeah if you look at a, uh, if you look at a version of dookie you can buy now the back cover doesn't have ernie on it anymore someone had edited it out but the original one it was a big thing among all our friends are like Oh, can you believe it? It's, you know, our boy's on the back cover of the album and he's got the Ernie puppet that he brought to all the shows and he's waving it around. And then, you know, the, the corporate Sesame Street Henson cabal steps in and Jim Henson personally stepped in and had that removed. Now it's not just legendary venues, legendary places, legendary bands. It's also legendary incidents. And my friends were lucky enough or unlucky enough that they attended one of the most legendary shows that happened in New Jersey in the 1990s. And speaking of this, I just had a memory, which I had not written down. I don't think you'd put it in the, in the outline either. Am I remembering right? There was an infamous Earth Crisis show at Middlesex K 
County College <laughs> where a riot broke out. And if I remember right, I remember my brother saying, I think maybe you guys went but didn't get in and you were right outside when the riot happened or did you get in? No, we got in, but so we got in, but we left as the riot broke out. So what happened was, <laughs> so there, there was this band, Earth Crisis, who super, I don't know, they might still exist, actually. I have no idea. Um, but they were super hardcore, militant, vegan, animal rights band. And, uh, and a lot of people in the hardcore scene back then love to pull their chain because they were so extreme, right? They were the, the super extreme version of straight edge, which to be straight edge, not only could you not drink and not smoke, you also, you know, shouldn't be having casual sex and you also had to be vegan and do all these other things. And it rubbed a lot of people the, the wrong way. Um, you know, so, I mean, there was also, it went as far as like some bands saying you have to be Hari Krishna, like Krishna. Oh yeah, there's lots of Krishna. Which is to, I forgot that. to each their own, but yeah, like there were extremes in the hardcore scene for sure. And, and I think they were one of them. So, you know, MCC, Middlesex County College used to do a lot of shows as well. They, they had a really great show space. And so Earth Crisis was playing there and we went to see Earth Crisis and during the Earth Crisis show, a, a person in a fur coat and I'm pretty sure that it was someone from a well-known New Jersey hardcore band put on a fur coat and he ran to the stage and started throwing milk or yogurt or some type of, of animal product along the band. And a huge fight breaks out with the band and people in the crowd and everyone. And that's when I said to our friends, I was like, let's get out of here. I was like, I don't really care one way or the other. (laughs) Like I'm not having it, you know? Um, I, I believe there is footage of this incident floating around the internet. Cause at the time it was a big thing and it caused a huge, a huge schism. There was the, 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 the side that was like hardcore is supposed to be about fun. And then there was the side that's hardcore has to be militant and is about clean living. And that was, I think where it all came to a head at Middlesex County college. I want to end tonight with words from two artists. First up is Lily. Lily is front person of Long Neck. Long Neck is a great band out there. Out of everybody you've heard from tonight, I think it's fair to say they're probably the young bucks of this bunch, but I really like them. I like their music. I like Lily. I like what Lily goes for. And I also feel like they're one of the bands that are in it right now doing all the things we're talking about. Even during the quarantine, Lily set up a whole series called The Campfire for young artists to come together, play, try to keep things going in a DIY digital space. Really respect it. And I think Lily had some words about coming up in New Jersey that expanded beyond just the scene and talk about how the New Jersey experience and the New Jersey attitude kind of focus you in on believing that doing stuff is even possible. Hey, everyone. Or Chris. Hi. Uh, This is Lily uh, Master Nimbus from the band Longneck. And, oh, boy, how I feel about New Jersey, let me tell you, it is my favorite place. Uh, (laughs) um, Growing up in uh, northern New Jersey and Hoboken, you know, being surrounded by music and, like, uh, what could be considered, like, the northern epicenter of uh, the music scene in uh, northern New Jersey. I mean, you got bands, you got Maxwell's, and... Um, just having that around, you know, you're constantly 
hearing things and experiencing things that stick with you and inspire you along the way. But then I moved out to the suburbs um, and eventually, you know, you start to realize you need to make your own kind of fun. Um, you know, what kid wants to be stuck in the suburbs? Nobody. Uh, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. Um, but that move, you know, it, it really makes you appreciate uh, not only the arts in general and uh, what they have, like, given to you, but it also uh, kind of forces you to think outside the box. So, you know, as a, as a young kid in Jersey, you start to kind of, like, latch on to anything that will inspire you. Um, and being in a, a state with such a rich musical history and also a uh, rich... Uh, almost mysticism. There's this, uh, this uh, rich urban legend uh, culture in Jersey, and you just want to go out and explore. Um, and I feel like the, I kind of fell in love with that, that kind of unknown um, and that magic. And there's, there's that magic to Jersey that I feel like people from outside the state don't, like, don't fully understand. Um but that it, it's just a beautiful thing. So whenever I think of Jersey, um, I think of devils in the woods and ghosts and uh, secret villages and <laughs> abandoned mental hospitals. Um, but I also think of exploring them with my friends and falling in love with danger. And you know, I think of the the songs that we listened to uh, when we went out to do all that and. Um, there, there are days that I will treasure for forever, really. Um, so, Jersey, punk rock, devils, <laughs> ghosts, what else do you need? Um, that's my ramble. I hope that was something. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Punk attitude really extends beyond just your traditional punk music. Uh, it informs everybody. You're now going to hear from GDP. He's a hip-hop artist. He's the best. He's from my hometown of West Orange, New Jersey. He's put out a series of albums that are just really incredible and that make me proud to be from the same hometown he's from. And Orange Water is, of course, the uh, theme song of our show, and he's the, he's the mastermind behind that one. And he talks about something that I think is really valid which is the chip on the shoulder. We all know Jersey people got a chip on their shoulder. We all know that being in the shadow of Philly and New York affects a lot of stuff. And I think he sums up how that affects the musicians from this state. What's up, Chris? It's GDP from West Orange, New Jersey, our alma mater. Um, you'd asked me to call in in regards to what coming up in Jersey meant to be. Um, and I've been thinking about it a bit. And I guess... Um, there's a treasure trove of great bands and artists and whatnot from New Jersey that don't necessarily get the attention or the opportunities that their New York or Philly counterparts do. Um, it's like you're fighting three times as hard for a fraction as much. And as a result, I think often really, really talented people end up settling for less creative lives because there's just not the infrastructure in New Jersey. Um, 
like you're not from New York and Richard Prince is a family friend or like your pops used to smoke pot with the Velvet Underground or whatever. And then like, you know, then those that make it out are like so proud of where they're from because of New Jersey's like forgettableness. I met like so many bands. Um, I mean, on the earlier tours that are like, yeah, you know, New York shows suck, Philly shows suck, don't get what the big fuss is about, but Jersey was the best show of this whole tour, and like, we never even heard of this place. So it's like, whatever odds against, there's like this rock and roll tradition and a camaraderie amongst people, creative people from New Jersey, and, and, and New Jersey in general, but like definitely musicians. Um, it's palpable, and it's, it's as inspiring to me as in old photos, your parents hanging out with Jim Jarmusch in the Bowery or whatever. Um, and that's no diss to New York, but it's like coming up in New Jersey means like you got something to prove. Uh, yeah, yeah. Big love, Chris. How's it going? Bye. I think that idea, you go out, you get scared, you learn how to dive into the fear. Very on target. Puts a smile on my face. You can hear me smiling. And we're going to end tonight with the great Mikey Erg. Mikey's a true friend of mine. He was in the house band of the Gethard Show. But I've been a fan for years. The Ergs, his solo stuff. He's the drummer in the Unlovables, my wife's bands. He's the drummer in Warriors, who you also heard about. He's the drummer in a lot of bands. Plays in a lot of bands. And his solo output has been incredible. And he really is a true gent of New Jersey. And I bet a lot of people are going, all this talk of music. No talk of Bruce? No talk of Bon Jovi? Well, let's solve that because I think Mikey really goes ahead and talks about how having those guys as the umbrella to set the tone affects everything. This is, uh, this is Mikey Erg from Old Bridge, New Jersey, and uh, I'm going to talk about Jersey music. Uh, um, it, it was pretty wild to be a young Jersey kid and to listen to my Bruce Springsteen records and he's talking about highway nine, which was right outside my door. And, uh, you know, to have, to have someone like Bruce Springsteen come from your town and, and you were from your area and you were, uh, and you're from the same state. And then Bon Jovi say what you will about Bon Jovi, but he's kind of a shit. And he was from literally pretty much my town. And that was pretty cool too. And I was a little kid into very into music and to have these musicians in my backyard was pretty insane. And then I got into punk rock and there was a, you know, a very, very fertile local scene uh, in New Jersey for, for punk rock. And it was not hard at all to find bands and uh, like-minded individuals to hang out with that were into punk rock. And so that was cool with the, with the cheesequake firehouse, uh, scene and all the local hall shows and Felix Trump and the youth ahead and all those bands. It was just a, a really wonderful place to come up uh, to, to, you know, to be figuring punk rock out. Um, and then to actually start venturing into New Brunswick and seeing all of the, the cool New Brunswick sh- 
bands, you know, seeing the Bouncing Souls and seeing, uh, you know, Thursday and Lifetime, uh, it was just really, it was very, it made me, I was always proud to be from New Jersey, but it made me even more proud and more proud to be coming up in that music scene and then to actually become a part of it, to actually start doing things and start doing shows and playing basement shows in New Brunswick and, 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 uh, going out on tour and spreading the word about New Brunswick and bringing bands back. Uh, it really was a, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. I'm very excited that I got to be a part of it, that I'm still connected to it in some way. And yeah, New Jersey music. It's the best. You've been hearing me shout to the hills on New Jersey's The World about how I want you to leave voicemails at 973-780-4660. And Lee, you left a voicemail saying it's time to talk about the music scene. You are a part of it and you think the world deserves to know. And hopefully, Lee, you feel like we honored your suggestion. And I hope everybody out there realizes if you want to throw some stuff at us, we're very, very happy to explore it. And I hope you've enjoyed this look at the music scene of New Jersey specifically the punk scene, the DIY scene, because it affects everything here. For a certain type of person, it affects everything. It affects me. It affects why this very project exists. So I thank all the musicians who participated today. Thank you, Mike D and Bonaduce. Thank you to Carson Cop. Most of all, thank you to the bands and the songs that made all of us growing up here believe that things were possible. Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the world is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce, Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Kopp, and Mike D. New Jersey is the world is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the world and on Instagram at New Jersey is the world. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World, where New Jersey is...